You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Nipe. With always typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 2002 J horror classic, Dark Water. Is it a classic? Is it really a classic? <laughs> well, I think that it's a classic, but I think that when we're talking about Japanese horror coming out of this particular era, there's some real good ones. Oy, there's some real good ones. And not only that, but this is Hideo Nakata himself, largely considered the master of the dead whack girl. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Got hair in the face, hair in the faucet, hair all over the place. Yeah. Little tiny kids, dead, creepy girls. Yeah. Yeah. He is the king of that for sure. That's why, in a way, I still wish he could just bust out and do the Entity remake. Nice to see him, like, stretch his limits a little bit yeah but the ghost in the entity for all we know is a male or a male and two minions yeah ultra rapey and no room for hair creepy girls or anything at all yeah because i'm always was under the impression that the ghost in the entity is hairless like bald waxes himself you know what i'm saying he seems like that guy i pictured danzig that's like all i picture (laughs) i picture this great big see-through danzig Mm -hmm. anyway that's the entity um, I'm sure he could figure out a way to have a little girl crawling out of a well or a water tank and that somewhere. Mm-hmm. Or at least have the iconography. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that we were doing the remake of this for some fucked up reason <laughs> today. No, we weren't. No. Uh, so in 2005, Darkwater was remade starring Jennifer Con- Connelly. It's one of the better remakes of Asian horror. Yeah, it's not that bad. Uh, and, and honestly, it's not that I have anything against that movie in particular. It's just that it's me. So I always feel the need to go back. We go back to the original. And especially if we're going to be doing a Hideo Nakata film, this is the person that you know, I've been asked this several times in interviews and uh, in my real life. What's your top five horror movies? What's your top ten horror movies? It's usually a pretty ridiculous question because like most people who answer questions like this, it changes constantly. And I don't know if a movie that I like today, I'm going to like tomorrow. But one of the films that is consistently on my top five list is the 1998 Ringu. Ringu has always had a special place in my heart in terms of introducing me to Japanese horror, Asian horror in general, and also introducing me to one of my most favorite horror villains of all time, Sadako or Samara. And that happened, of course, with the 2002 remake of The Ring. That was the first one that I saw. And then I went back and I saw the 1998 one. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people that have a real interest in Asian horror, Ringu is pretty much ground zero. That is where everyone can agree that they got into it with that. Like everyone tells the same fucking story, even though the, you know, horror aficionados will tell you that well, you know, Whispering Corridors from Korea came first and, you know, this isn't the first this isn't the first adaptation of Koji Suzuki's work, Ringu. I mean, the first one was a 1995 
made-for-TV movie that apparently uh, Nakata did see. But that one is very adherent to the original book, whereas this film or the film Ringu makes a, takes a lot of liberties, everything from changing characters to changing Samara to the television aspect. That's all kind of just for the movie. And so when Ringu was released in 1998, it was a huge smash success in Japan. And then the remake, I cannot emphasize this point enough, made a quarter of a billion dollars globally. I can believe it. It's a damn great movie. It's a damn great movie. And it is one of the highest grossing horror movies, period. It is in the upper echelon of bankable horror franchises it's up there with jaws and it is hands down the most singularly profitable horror remake ever so this movie made a massive smash on the western front and of course what happens when that happens everybody follows suit and so everyone who has the money to scrape together a movie looks east Okay, what do we got here? And so everything got remade. Pulse, Shudder, Tale of Two Sisters, uh, The Grudge. These were all people dipping their toes into Asian cinema. Now, beforehand, Asian ghost stories had been around in Japan forever. Not just culturally speaking, but also film-wise. But they kind of were in eclipse. But man, did they come back. And then this started the J-horror boom. And much like we talk about the slasher boom in the in the early '80s, late '70s, early '80s, this in the early aughts, uh, you know, 2098, basically 1998 to like 2005, 2006, these movies were fucking everywhere. And the person largely considered to be the master of this is Hideo Nakata, just because he was the one that was top of mind for everybody when he was making Ringu. And even before then, he did a ghost story. He did uh, 1996's Don't Look Up, which is another fantastic ghost story. Um, and so in 2002, he follows it up. After he did Ringu 2, he went ahead and he did another story, also based off of um, Koji Suzuki's work. Off of the same Dark Water anthology? Well, it's not the same. Well, so the Dark Water... Uh, uh, short stories that um, uh, Suzuki was working on. Darkwater was plucked from that. Ringu was its own separate uh, book. Oh, okay. Where because uh, it was like Ringu and then Spiral and Birthday and Loop. These were all uh, Suzuki's singular bo- books that were taking place in the Ring universe. But uh, he also, his editors apparently asked him to do uh, do a collection of short stories. And I was like, all right. And so he did a collection of short horror stories. They had the theme of water. Mm. And so one of the stories, uh, and by the way, the only reason why I'm really familiar with uh, this is I, I've said a million times before that I don't really read a lot. No, yeah. And you did admit on the previous episode that you read a book. <laughs> or you alluded to reading a book. And I think you were lying. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you need to write, read a book about tying people up? I mean, really. I think you made that up. So, ergo, I don't think you read books at all. So, continue with your lies. <laughs> well, because this is not just any book. Because this was one of the many stories that used to have, you know, no cool pictures in it at all. 
and it got adapted into something digestible to me a manga oh like comic books okay i get it this is yeah yeah you do read comic books i do read comic books and dark water got uh translated or, or adapted into a manga much in the same way that if you guys don't know this uh ring and juan also got adapted into really cool uh mangas that have amazingly creepy covers and the art really uh goes well with the storyline and it's just fucking creepy and um, really good, and they're very inexpensive. I picked ma- J horror mangas up at like conventions for a song, like nothing. Yeah, no, no one really cares about them because they're pretty old at this point too. And and Darkwater is no exception. And this story particularly is pulled from the Floating Water, which was one of seven stories that are within this anthology. I'm definitely going to check that out because I do like manga and I don't mean to sound so silly when I accuse you of only reading comic books. I'm a huge no, fan of I know comics and manga and like couldn't drive home enough to people that if your kids are reading comic books, they're reading. It's, it, don't think of them as any sort of like fluff or foolishness or childishness for adults to be reading comic books. All adults should be reading comic books. And I'm really, I didn't know that there was manga adaptations of uh the ring which is pretty cool to me mm-hmm. um i had actually purchased for the just past holiday of gift giving and consumerism two graphic novels for my niece and nephew uh namely cowboys and aliens which mm-hmm. is super fun and pride prejudice and zombies mm-hmm. and it was kind of neat that i had picked up Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies at the same time that Chris from Vine Torture Cast had been watching the film, which is super cool. And it helped me to drive home to my niece and nephew that these books might seem for boys and for girls, one or the other, but they're totally interchangeable and I want you both to share and read them both, right? Um, A lot of guys would probably look at something like Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies and think it's just not for them, which I'm just so glad that that sort of stuff doesn't matter. As much as reading comic books as reading doesn't matter, people can read whatever they want to, whether it seems like it's a little softer or for boys, like Cowboys and Aliens for a girl and Pride, Prejudice and Zombies for a boy might strike some people as odd. But I was really glad that Chris had watched Pride, Prejudice and Zombies and he had had a lot of fun with it. So I definitely need to watch that as well. And if you had listened to the previous Bind Torture cast as further with Chris and I doing things at the same time. He had watched Faces of Snuff at the same time I had watched Snuff Tape Anthology. And we don't plan these things. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like we don't plan them necessarily. We're just very simpatico. And even Luke had pointed out how cute that is. Um, Oddly on the last Bind Torture cast, Chris had talked about watching um, Carved, our episode 28. Which is way back when, where we had covered an Asian horror film, and you had said something about, we should do more Asian horror. I could watch Asian horror all day long. We should do a whole bunch of this. That's it. We're going to do it up, lids. Me and you. Asian horror all the time. And Sounds like me. done one since, apparently. Yeah, we did Suicide Club. Yeah. But not like the truckloads of fucking Asian horror like we had planned. Mm-hmm. And... Chris and I got talking about this outside of Bind Torture Cast when he had mentioned that he'd watched Carved. We had talked about him watching Carved and he's like, you guys should really do more Asian horror. Like if I had any sort of request, which he doesn't usually feed us with requests. We did Repulsion, but you know, I'd love to do more Chris Legrest requests. 
Mm. But he had brought this up and I was like, well, funny you should mention because we've got this smorgasbord coming up. Yeah. Of Asian horror. We've got this. Correct, yeah. And after Dark Water, we're doing Pulse. Yeah. And after Pulse, we're doing Abnormal Beauty. Yeah. And after our normal beauty, we're doing rigor mortis. Yeah. So it's just four in a row. So it was just neat that he had mentioned and sort of called us out on having skipped over one of our favorite genres. And it really is one of our agreed upon favorite genres. Mm-hmm. And here we are. Yeah, we're definitely here to talk about Dark Water. This is a film that when I was consuming as much Asian horror as I can, because I caught the bug in a big way. I had instantaneously become interested in the genre. And even though films like Ringu and The Ring really, really fascinated me and holy fuck that I love these movies, by the time I saw Juan, a film that had completely broken every rule that I thought I knew about horror, even breaking established rules that I was just learning from J-horror, the idea of a relentlessly aggressive spirit. It was one of the most scared times of me sitting in the theater that I can remember. Seeing the fucking Grudge remake. (laughs) Like, I I just couldn't believe it. I was like, this is, it's so aggressive and it won't stop in the middle of the day in a crowded room under blankets. Holy shit. And so at that point, I was ready. I was, uh, you know, this big Damascus conversion just struck down by the hand of God. And you knew that this was the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. and, And I said, well, what's, what else? And so... I ran straight into the arms of Taylor Two Sisters. Right. Again, another fucking amazing movie, right? Fucking add it to the list. We'll get another one in there eventually, (laughs) right? So at the time, I had a couple of friends who were avid downloaders of films. And, you know, when I was younger and had no morals, I would watch them that way because there was just no real way. I didn't know how to get, you know, there wasn't streaming services like we have these days. Or maybe if we were younger, we didn't have a lot of access to places like when Invisible Cinema was here. Yeah. Uh, that's where I watched Sick Nurses, you know. I really yeah. liked renting and there's not a lot of rental places that really cater to those uh, mm-hmm. Asian extreme films. Especially when I was living in the south side of Ottawa. I, I mean, I had all the, as far as I was concerned, all the local mom and pop video sh- stores were gone. And so the only thing that was around me really was a blockbuster. Blah. Right. And say what you want about blockbuster. I mean, I did was able to rent Ringu there. And you had pointed out when we had went that when remakes were happening, people who were running these video stores would have the presence of mind to plot the original Japanese versions next to it if they were available on DVD. Yeah, which is really handy because they are film fans, too. Yeah. It's the number one reason they own those stores. Exactly. So... I would get exposed to these things in increments. And then as I became more savvy with the internet and I started reading up on things because that was really what I was using the internet for. I mean, in 2002, I wasn't really doing much with the internet. I was still in high school. So it didn't, and it wasn't in my brain yet to like chat rooms. What's that for? You just call people on the phone. Like I was that guy. Like I was so. I was learning cascading style sheets and wary of messenger. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't really fucking pay attention to all that kind of stuff. But then when I realized that it was, you know, I could go to like these fucking like GeoCities shit fuck re- websites with black background and red text. 
you know, I, I, I would be researching these types of movies and trying to figure out where I could get them, where I could watch them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And horror periodicals really were a good resource to that. Especially, you know, you're talking about like reading Rumorg or Fango at the time. You know, it would be easy to kind of pay attention to this because they were following the trends as well, right? It seems mm. these movies became huge and so people wanted more of them. Uh, people that I know uh, that uh, were running video stores at the time have expressed to me that they used to have an entire section dedicated to Asian horror and it used to be immensely popular. Uh, you know, rented constantly. People would constantly be taking out all these you know, the Tartan Asian extreme titles, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but then she had said, eventually it had just dropped completely off. Like all of a sudden, like someone turning off a light, people kind of moved away from it. I never did. And, <laughs> and amongst all of my consumption, I did watch Dark Water, but I saw it one time and I was like, cool. I liked it. It was a good movie, but it wasn't until Arrow re-released it into this gorgeous Blu-ray collection, like all their fucking collections are gorgeous. Yeah. And and and, and I was like, huh, oh, Dark Water, I remember that one. And so grab it and I watch it and now I love it even more now. Me and my mom had rented the remake and enjoyed it. And then the next weekend I rented the original and her take on it was, why do you want to watch the same movie twice? <laughs> Which they're quite different, you know, and... We watched it and she did okay. She's like, yeah, yeah, okay, I get it. It is different. I liked it better. Mm -hmm. Um, I found it scary. I didn't find the remake scary. I don't remember Mm. the remake being scary. It has a lot more production geared toward a horror fan, a North American horror fan, for sure. But it's Mm -hmm. not scary at all. Um, This actually does have moments of terror. They do that very, very well. Mm-hmm. Hideo Nakata does that very, very well. Mm-hmm. These actresses and these child actors are very, very dialed in to mm-hmm. this story. It's got an inherent creepiness, which I don't think that the remake conveys. One of the things that the remakes have going against them, I think, is when somebody I was talking to earlier in the week actually said something quite interesting to me. He posed me a question during our lunch break at work. And he said, Wes, let me ask you this. How, what What is it about horror movies where the second I see the thing, the demon, the ghost, the puppet, whatever, the second I see the thing, I don't care anymore. Like I'm, a checkout. Like I, I'm not scared anymore. He, and, he, and he says, why? Why? He was, and he said, he honestly, he said a lot of stuff, guys. Like, just <laughs> this guy that I know, he, he's a real good dude, but fuck, does he talk, talks more than me, if you can believe it. And I said, and I said, it's kind of a play on the monster problem. The monster problem in horror, uh, and I don't mean to fucking mansplain anything to you listeners. If you know, you know. If you don't. Oh, mansplain it to me. I'm all ears. <laughs> the monster problem in horror, very specifically, is when you are building tension towards a reveal of a creature. Let's take Jaws, for example. By the time you see the shark, you're kind of like, oh, old Brucey doesn't look too good. He built it way up in your mind. And exactly. there's so many people will talk about waiting for whatever they built up in their minds and they're disappointed. And instead of like articulating it with, this is what I had built it up and they did really, really well, except that's not what I expected. They're just like, monsters sucked. 
And that's what they base the whole movie on. And they can sink an entire movie. They actually enjoyed. They would admit they enjoyed it under pressure with a gun to their head. But left to their own devices, they're going to say it sucked because the little monster fucking reveal didn't live up to their expectations. Exactly. And this also pertains to when we're talking about ghosts and ghoulies and stuff like that. Long-legged beasties. <laughs> exactly. What American films tend to do, with very few exceptions, although I can think of a couple off the top of my head, is show you the thing a lot earlier than they tend to do in Japanese horror. With some notable exceptions being things like the Ring remake. They they pull the taffy on Samara pretty much the same way that they do in the first one. Although by the time you get the reveal of this young woman spirit, she's a hell of a lot more aggressive looking and more gnarled and gory looking. And she just looks way more fucked up than Sadako does in the original. The same thing with Dark Water. The yeah, same I was going to say Dark Water does it pretty similarly as well. Yeah. Especially when you're dealing with the ideas like, okay, well, this is a bloated corpse. They have way more money to spend on effects and makeup. And so they're going to do it, even though, honestly, the ghost in the original 2002 Darkwater, pretty fucking heinous. Well, in the North American films, they're like sort of toying with that um, lowest common denominator, the Android's Dungeon Pundit Peanut Gallery bullshit artist yeah who's going to be like oh well they didn't show me the monster and i built up this great big idea in my head so i'm gonna be disappointed no matter what you fucking do Mm -hmm. and then people who like well they showed the monster in little increments like we're used to like we want that freddy krueger sort of dosed out beat of reveal we want to see the shadow we want to see the backlit version we want to see the side lit version we want this creeping reveal exactly and listen i'm not knocking that type of horror story we i love horror stories like that but i think the problem is is you are dealing with narrative that fits within the structure of an asian ghost story and you could try to put as much western sensibility in it as you want the problem is always going to be the same they're showing way more of the monster the ghost earlier in the film they just are a lot of yamishibai kind of start like that though someone walks Mm. into a toilet in a school and they see a ghost Mm -hmm. and then the story gets scarier as you learn the backstory Mm -hmm. and learn how that ghost relates to you and why it appeared to you so you've seen all there is to see Mm -hmm. it's the telling after that Mm -hmm. is the story and the scary part yeah a lot of asian ghost stories are like but which is why I love ghost stories so much is is learning the history, the life that has been lost tragically. That's what I love. I love library scenes. I love flashbacks. I love shit like that where it's explaining because as a horror fan, I see a lot of ghosts, not in real life, but I see a lot of ghosts on screen. And so the reason why you can keep going back to the well so many times, if I could use that fucking <laughs> You're expression. A funny guy. <laughs> the reason why I can keep going back to the well sealed or not is i want to know what this ghost story is what is this young woman young man old man whoever what is this demon where does this come from why that's why people aren't paying attention when they accuse asian horror of just being uh ghost faced girls with long black hair that are wet and it's like well they're all very very different yeah, they are extraordinarily different. And also there's this weird sensibility. And I didn't know this, but I recently had watched a documentary that came with the, the DVD 
is that um, Koji Suzuki has something in his contract when you're adapting his stuff, which of course happens a lot now because his his written word is considered quite bankable in the film industry. Mm-hmm. He has clauses in these contracts where there has to be stipulations where there's no blood and you can't show the ghost. There, it's in. It's, so if you want to adapt his things, you have to come up with creative ways to get around with just putting a ghost in front of somebody he postulates that that's where the idea of sadako coming out of the television came from because he he said well you can't just show the ghost so there has to be something yeah instead of it so if you're gonna show it you i guess it's okay to him because he gets final approval on it if you decide to show the ghost so I'm guessing that he, in his mind, because he verbalizes it himself, he doesn't think that they would have come up with something as creative if he hadn't put that stipulation in his contract. Very, very true. I definitely agree with him there. And it explains a lot. Mm-hmm. That explains a lot about those uh, particular ghosts and this particular ghost. Yeah, because it's the same thing. We don't we we don't really see that ghost in its pure ghost form. No, we don't get a full frontal ghost face. Yeah. And, it, and it, even when we do get something that can pass for that, it's not quite right. Same with Samara. We get yeah. sort of a, a twisted version, a it, far more twisted and enraged version of that little girl. Yeah, because even when you see this girl, she's always in the background. She's out of focus. You don't see her face. You see hints of her, but you don't really see her. And these are all the things that scriptwriters have to work around because he is very strict about that's it's 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 there black and white. When I suggested doing this film to you, mm-hmm. you were interested. It took no convincing because you wanted to like put your Lydia spin on it. Oh well, now you've set me up as some sort of fucking expert on this shit. No, I'm not an expert. But the internet, being what it is, has adopted a story, a, a true crime story, a very strange case that, that I, I'm familiar with, but I'd like you to lay it all out for you us. You know, we watched the Elisa Lam video after we watched this film, oh, and boy, it's creepier than the fucking horror movie. It's creepier than the last handful of horror movies we've watched. Mm-hmm. Easily. There's all been a lot of buzz on the internet about this movie, the remake as well. There's a lot of conspiracy theorist videos on YouTube if you want to seek them out about the connections to the Darkwater films, the story entirely, and the Elisa Lam case, who was a student from Vancouver who ended up at the Cecil Hotel in LA, and she went missing February 1st, uh, 2013, and was found in the water tank above the Cecil Hotel, which is a quite infamous hotel for housing all sorts of celebrities and gangsters and most notably Richard Ramirez the Night Stalker lived there and killed people there. Mm -hmm. I think he killed 13 people there. Mm -hmm. I think. And also Elizabeth Smart if I remember her name correctly uh, of the Black Dahlia murder. The Black Dahlia herself had stayed there. So it's very infamous and people do tour there for that specific reason and a lot of other notable names and just the the sleazy skid row quality of that particular fucking hotel which has tried to change its name but that doesn't trick anybody and they know yeah i think i really think that's why um, miss lamb had gone there was just to tour some cd story 
some seedy storied hotel, which I would definitely like to go there even before Elisa Lam. I'd like to go there. And I really want to go there now. Other people have too. So not only conspiracy theorist videos and the original video of Elisa Lam herself, the last footage of her being in the elevator Mm -hmm. before her body was found in the water tank above the hotel, like more than two weeks later, there's people that go through that hotel and check out the the floors that are pictured in that final video inside the elevator who go up to the water tank. And oddly, the door is unlocked, even though everyone keeps saying the door was locked and the door should always be locked. The door is unlocked and they go up on top of the water tower and everything. It's very, very creepy. It's a very long video and it's subtitled because it's in Japanese. But, or it is or is not subtitled, I don't even remember, but... For the past, like, four years, this is what I've been doing, is watching Elisa Lam conspiracy videos on YouTube, right? It's, like, all I do. Um, But, yeah, she had gone missing. No one's really sure about her actions that night. The last thing we know of her is on the video you can see on YouTube where she acts very creepy in the elevator. And you could either go one of three ways that... The elevator is haunted and there's a ghost in there and she's acting weird because she's scared and she's seen something... Or she is suffering a mental illness and having some sort of breakdown. It doesn't explain why the elevator isn't working properly, but I'm sure someone could explain that away. Or there's someone else there and she's in some sort of danger or is being coerced by someone else who is there. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'd have to watch the video. No one can actually say what happened because it's still completely unsolved. Her body was found naked inside the water tank. One Mm -hmm. of three water tanks, I think, Mm -hmm. on top of the hotel. And patrons of the hotel, and there are some permanent residents there and a lot of tourists, of course. Um, People had been reporting a funny smell from the water. And it had been tasting strange and sweet. And it was a little dark. And I'm not even trying to be funny. Like, that is absolutely gross to be drinking corpse water. Apparently, it is not unhealthy. There is no ill effects from drinking corpse water. No, uh, and I found that pretty surprising. I first encountered the Elisa Lamb video as part of a, it was like a top 10 video creepiest uh, videos that you can watch on YouTube right now. And I was watching the video and I, I was like, whatever. Like this, It was like three o'clock in the morning and I was watching some stuff. And yeah, admittedly, some of it was pretty creepy, but it wasn't sticking to me. And then it gets to this elevator footage and that guy narrating it, plus the music that they chose to play over top of it, and really breaking down what this woman is doing in this elevator and how bizarre it is, I instantaneously stopped the video because I said to myself, well, this isn't helping. And I went and I opened up a Wikipedia page and obviously found other YouTube videos. And I really fell down the rabbit hole of researching this because I had no idea when it had happened at the time and finding it absolutely bizarre. And when you had brought it up, later when we were talking about doing dark water of course i instantaneously knew what you were talking about and i had never really drawn parallels between this film and that but there is so many fucking open questions the the autopsy of this woman was completely inconclusive um she did it she did have a mental illness she was on medication there was there's evidence to support that but when you watch the video it also looks like she's talking to somebody And she looks like she's hiding from somebody. She looks scared of somebody. But that being said, she's also behaving in a way that doesn't really make sense. And on top of that, why is the fucking elevator not working? And then all of a sudden it starts to work. Someone could be holding that button. 
They could be doing that for sure. But when you pointed out, she steps out of the elevator, it looks like she sees nobody. Yeah, it looks like she sees nobody. She is making bizarre hand gestures that don't exactly look conversational. I'm a dude that talks with my hands. But they don't really look conversational. You said that this these hand motions that she's doing is not uncommon with people suffering from like schizophrenia and stuff like that. Yeah, they're very they're almost exactly like a lot of textbook hand motions that people with schizophrenia can do, either to calm themselves or when they're in conversation with people that we can't see, or conversations yeah. with themselves, or arguing with us uh, inner voices if they're hearing inner voices. Um, those hand motions can get extremely exaggerated and look very, very bizarre. And sometimes it's um, the the muscles themselves are tensing up and loosening up in ways that aren't natural at all. And they don't look natural. They don't feel natural when they're happening either. So that could be part of it. It's hard to say because there isn't just one shade of schizophrenia either. You can be That's suffering true. from schizophrenia and have absolutely none of these symptoms. And I'm not that much of an expert on Elisa Lamb to know what symptoms that she had ever exhibited, what drugs she was on, for what reasons, if she was taking those drugs, which apparently she was, but on low dosage. But then some reports say she'd stopped taking her medication, but which is something that people just like to tend to say when it comes to schizophrenia. But she had been attending classes and maybe doing not so well in some of them before she took her trip, maybe as a par- a way to sort of come to grips with her own stress levels. Mm-hmm. Anyone, schizophrenia or not, would have done the same thing, I think, after years of university study and just knowing they need a break. It has nothing to do with a break in reality, I don't think. But that's what makes this case so intriguing is that diagnosis aside... Her admission that she is under a lot of stress and is waiting for this bad feelings to pass. All of that aside, it's very, very normal. She was a very well-adjusted, normal, well-liked, happy individual that spent a lot of time blogging and taking Instagram photos and decided to take a little vacation and check out some weird places in the U.S. All very, very normal and came to the most extraordinary, abnormal, and creepy end of anyone I can remember in common history at all. Yeah. It is really, really, really bizarre. And one of the most haunting things about it is the fact that this video exists for anyone to look at. You know, we were talking about this before we went, how the fact that so many, and you had pointed out so many times that people get kidnapped or murdered or something. I mean, there's so many cameras around the world these days that, yeah, it's very common to see here's the last known footage of this person being alive and they're being escorted out of a mall by somebody. And you're like, who's that fucking guy? The person that killed him, I guess. But this video is so unique because we don't see anyone else. And she's acting so strange. It's very strange. And there's no one in the world that could watch this and say, oh, yeah, no, I act like that all the time. Or I see people act like that all the time. No, she is acting fucking weird and i don't care who you are you're gonna agree yeah. that there's something more going on with that yeah and Plus, i kept and like, i kept thinking to myself i was like my kingdom for a soundbite if she's talking to someone we can't see yeah or better video if there's any way we can tell from a glare or reflection something a shadow but it's just not picked up on such grainy video and of course yeah no audio if only there were and i'm sure that her family and friends wish the same thing because it is just tragic no matter how you look yeah. at that story uh, i'd first heard of the elisa lamb case on the top floor of a downtown hotel 
that I was working in, we were cleaning rooms and me and my friend Sarah had turned on the news while we cleaned the living room and it came to the breaking discovery of this case and they showed that footage. So I got to watch that footage on a top floor as the sun is setting in a hotel downtown. So that was nice. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, not freaky at all. Let me tell you, even just watching that video right now, in the middle of the afternoon, I'm I was just like, Ugh. yeah, it's unsettling. Yeah. It's unsettling, especially like whether we had watched Dark Water moments before or not. It's yeah. the idea of drinking yeah. corpse water, let alone what even happened to her, let alone what is she doing in that elevator at that exact moment. What is going on? No yeah. one can definitively explain what is going on in that video. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even if she had lived, you know, if let's say she lived in a coma or lived in as a mute or lived and just wouldn't tell or lived and said, I didn't remember watching that video. Still no explanation. There's something fucked up going on. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. So dark water. What is this movie even about anyways, Lydia? Dead wet girls. Right. So this film is about a dead wet girl. But more specifically, this film is about... A single mother and her adorable little daughter. Ridiculously adorable. And oh my like, God. I am not the biggest fan of a lot of child actors. And I'm not the biggest fan of annoying little brats. And I could care less for single moms and their problems. But because uh, they all have them. They're all the same. It's like textbooks. But this little girl, I want to be her. <laughs> she is so adorable and so well behaved. And well-dressed. Oh, my God. Her adorable little hat and her matching boots that match her umbrella and shit. Oh, my God. She's too precious. Hallmark of a mom doing a good job. I know, right? Dressing her up like a little doll. But where this film starts off is we're introduced to Yoshimi and her daughter, Ikuko. And she's looking for an apartment. Why is she looking for an apartment? Because she is in the midst of a bit of a divorce. And she has a child custody hearing going on right now. And, of course, if you know anything about uh, Japanese culture, uh, you know, divorce at this time in 2002, you know, it's, it's a lot more rare. And so I guess the idea was for her to be struggling with, I guess, perception of her being divorced because a lot of people seem to bring it up. Not just the people in the custody hearing who know she's getting a divorce, but it seems to come up in job interviews. It seems to come up when she's showing her daughter to the new kindergarten, uh, the principal and the teachers, etc. Yeah, if you're if you're not interested in, in divorce or Asian cinema at all and you want to wrap your brain around this, just uh, transplant every time she says divorce with I have cancer. And that's how people are reacting to her. Yeah. 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 Almost, almost, almost um, I, I mean, it doesn't really seem to get in the way of anything, but it seems to be questions that make it seem like, oh, maybe it could get in the way of something or th- at least just sort of like, oh, divorce. Hmm. Or that explains everything. That yeah. explains why you're going to live in this uh, crummy apartment. That explains why you're looking for a crappier job. That explains why you're late to pick your kid up from kindergarten and things like that. It just explains everything because you're a social pariah. And of course, you're getting a divorce. But I'm really proud of this film in particular because it's not showing her as a huge social pariah. It's not showing her as a huge failure, which, you know, 10 years previous, a Japanese film with a woman being divorced and seeking custody might have been a little more harsh that way. In this one, she's fighting for custody. 
mm-hmm. which is brilliant. She's mm-hmm. not just acquiescing. She's not just stepping down. She is going toe to toe with her ex to have sole custody herself. She's getting an apartment. She's not relying on family or anything to help her out, which, you know, 10, 20 years ago or 10, 20 years before this film came out, that would have definitely been the storyline. But now she's a modern woman doing this herself. And her husband's fucking playing dirty. Yeah. Bringing up a bunch of fucking weird shit from the past. Which isn't uncommon in divorce proceedings or custody yeah. battles even more so where people will be like, yeah, well, 10 years ago you were in the psycho ward. Yeah, which is a strange thing to bring up because her explanation, pretty rational. She was a proofreader. And she, I guess she was uh, proofreading some horror stories, mm-hmm. some sick, twisted horror stories that a weirdo might write. Yeah, he points at me when he says that. You know, I had my friend K-Star typing up uh, the first Night Face, and there was a part where she's typing, and she's getting scared, and it's getting scary, and she's typing, and it gets gory, and something happens, and she actually covered her eyes. <laughs> you know you have to keep reading this, right? Shh. Covering yeah. my eyes. <laughs> then her mother came in and said, what are you doing? And she was like, I don't know. I was scared. And that was just where my reaction lied. She still, we both still, that moment of her life is very dear to both of us because I scared somebody with my words. And she was going through what Yoshi was going through. She was typing up something that was really scaring her and sent her to the psycho ward. But it's not uncommon for people who are completely sane. They've never been in a psycho ward to be sent for a psyche val during a custody battle or divorce proceeding. Mm -hmm. Just so someone can play dirty and get what they want. Yeah, it's pretty strange. But you see, uh, they say it in the custody hearing that, you know, uh, the courts tend to favor women in these scenarios. So Especially with young kids under six years old. Yeah, young six years old. And her daughter is just about, is five, going on six. So... Yeah, I guess he's trying to do everything that he possibly can. Although she points out, rightfully so, by the way, that he seems like a fairly absentee father. I mean, I don't know how absent. He seems to legitimately care about her. But also, he seems to have – it seems to almost be like he's trying to hurt her. He's just trying to take the daughter away for whatever reason. Yeah, just to be malicious toward his ex. And it could be a status symbol. He seems fairly well off. And that could be one of those things. Where in a lot of jobs, people do look for the family person. But this could be that sort of thing where this guy needs to maintain some sort of family look for his job. Mm. Or perhaps gain sympathy so he can advance in his job. Oh, look at this guy, fucking single dad, just trying to take care of his kid. I need a raise. I have a mouth to feed. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's a lot of explanations. Because, and yes, the explanation could be like, maybe he just loves his daughter and doesn't trust his wife. Eh, he can't remember his daughter's birthday yeah and he's acting in a very specific way he's doing all this dirty handed shit he's not looking at her he's fucking smoking all rude you know what I mean like like the the, the actor is definitely making the choice like you're a dick by Mm -hmm. the way like this you're a cock no one likes you and you're playing dirty pool to basically snipe your daughter out from under your ex-wife but she's got it going on She's lined up an apartment. Oh, yeah. She's figured out one near uh, kindergarten, which is handy and yeah. smart. Yeah, yeah. Probably yeah. affordable. It's a little humid, though. Yeah, she notices that right away. There's even water in the elevator. There's water in the hallway going into the apartment. And I was trying to figure it out. Like, I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking, 
Do those windows in the hallway lead outside? Are they open? It is raining pretty bad. Did somebody walk down the hallway with an umbrella and set it down for a second so it all lost its water? That's really, really strange. And But no one seems to pay it any mind. So I, so I thought to myself, eh, I guess that's normal. I mean, I would definitely have a question or two if I was looking at an apartment and the hallway outside of my apartment, windows or not, had water all in it. I'd just be like, is this normal? Is this common? I just wouldn't have rented it. Oh, I wouldn't have rented it either. And I don't know why she was particularly desperate because she did seem desperate because she's like, oh, no, no, we're getting this place. But we seem to establish in the film early on with a little bit of uh, psychological warfare on her daughter to get her to keep going that they've been looking at houses all day. So maybe this is somehow the best one. Could be. Like price wise. It could be like within a price range. She's also looking for a job right now. So this is all really abrupt, I take it, where she's suddenly become on the streets, basically, without a place to live. There is mention later on of the auntie who lives a far way away. So maybe they are living way too far from what they consider normal life for them. And they need to move into the city right away. They need to have a place that day. That could be it. Maybe they'd been living in hotels and were sick of that. It's possible. But for whatever reason, she decides to rent this place out the dude selling it seems pretty fucking excited because a family walked away from him and said well we'll think about it which is of course means no yeah and but this is where we get our first our first little hint of some spooky no yeah well because she gets into one of those very japanese industrial elevators (laughs) and she thinks her daughter holds her hand and perhaps we think her daughter holds her hand but her daughter is up, gets out of the elevator, and she looks down to her hand where her daughter couldn't have been holding it because she wasn't standing behind her. And then when the landlord is looking at the security monitors, everyone gets on the elevator and the door closes. There's a little girl in there. There's a little girl in that elevator. That no one seemed to see. We and, didn't see. Yeah, blink and you might miss it. And he doesn't exactly, he's not the most intuitive dude in the world. He doesn't give a shit, really. He just sits there in his chair because... Blink and you miss this girl. And he doesn't seem to follow up on it. No. He doesn't seem to follow up on lots. Yeah. Yeah. Really. But while she's showing this apartment, uh, Ikuku goes missing. And this is where I will say that um, Yoshimi really ups the panic level pretty quick. But that being said, it is her only daughter and they are in a strange place and she just kind of wander off. But eventually, she does track down her daughter, and uh, her daughter's just uh, chilling on, uh, you go up to level seven, seven stories in this building, go up to seven, hit the roof, and uh, I guess- Skip along in the puddles, skip, wearing your rubber boots. And, and uh, you know, your mysterious little bunny bag. Yeah, which is really kind of adorable. It's uh, really similar to the Hello Kitty bag that is used as the device in the remake, and I guess Hello Kitty's far more- recognizable yeah yeah. to north american audiences and cuter sure it's cuter this is the mimico bag and it's a little red bag that she finds on the roof it's full of toys Mm -hmm. which is kind of cute um so bag full of toys on the roof i like that the mother goes all the way to the first floor and asks the superintendent if he's seen anything and the two ladies haven't seen anything that are sitting there and she races all around the building before she finds her so iku has a lot of time to spend just skipping around being cute up there. Nothing really happens to her. So all this tension and dread that's happening as her mother's racing around the building, we're almost fearing the worst. Mm-hmm. That she's like fallen off the building, that she's 
um, you know, met some sort of like evil presence up there or something. Mm -hmm. And she's really just kind of dicking around. Yeah. Um, Which is a good tension relief once her mom finds her with this bag, which they try to return and try and figure out who owned it. Mm -hmm. But it ends up in the lost and found. Yeah. They say the odd thing, which stuck out to me quite a bit. There was no other children in this building. Mm -hmm. Pretty strange. Kind of, considering, like you pointed out, it's uh, beside a kindergarten. It's with, uh, Yeah, I just feel an apartment complex within walking distance to a kindergarten, and there's no kids in this building? Mm-hmm. Kind of makes sense what happens 10 years later to this building. But yeah. before we get to that, um, there's also a little something wrong. She decides to take it, move in. Seems everything's going okay. Introduce her kid to the new school. But the apartment's not all that it seems. No, she'd noticed like a dark water spot um, in her bedroom when they first moved in. And the landlord showing the place had said, oh, we're going to re-wallpaper. So I guess she just sort of thought, oh, that must just be an old stain. But when she's moved in, it's an active stain and there is some water condensation collecting and it's growing. Mm-hmm. Drip it on her face. It's gross. And... She rightfully tries to get the landlord to look at it. It's like, hey, man, got a leak. It's dripping water. Can you do something about it? And he just kind of shrugs his shoulders. Well, yeah, it's an old building, so. I'll put a note in the log. Yeah, dot, dot, dot. Doesn't really seem to be anything that he's going to fucking do about it, which is ridiculous to me. Do you want to know this almost exact same thing happened to me? One day I woke up and I could hear this weird sound that I thought was leaving the drain on in my bathroom. I was like, good enough. I was like fucking all squinty eyed. It's all dark in my fucking room. I'm like, what's going on? What's that fucking noise? And so I, after a while of trying to ignore it, I just, I was like, fuck it, whatever. I'm getting up. And so I go into my bathroom and from my ceiling is absolutely pouring water. Just streams of water just fucking constantly coming to the floor. Was there hair in it? There was. Little chunks of decomposed flesh? <laughs> there wasn't. Uh, but the entire ceiling of my bathroom was fucked. And it was... I noticed that my ceiling in my bathroom had a couple of cracks in it before. But now it's just barely... And, and, I, and I put my hand up to the ceiling. And my fucking hand went right through the fucking ceiling in my bathroom. And it just fucking... All this fucking water comes down. And so I immediately call my landlord i'm like hey man so what's up apparently uh what had happened was my upstairs neighbor's uh, toilet had overflowed oh yum yeah so i got some toilet water in there not as bad as corpse water although i challenge you to think of something non-corpse related that's grosser than toilet water toilet toothbrush oh there you go Yeah, and I think toilet water is definitely dangerous to your health, where apparently corpse water is fine to drink. Well, you know what? I got a brand new ceiling and everything all paint, and they all painted it up, and it was great. But Nayoshi doesn't seem like anyone is helping her out. No, no. So it turns into things left around to catch this water dripping, and Iku spends some time sitting near these buckets of water, watching the water drip, drip, drip. Just being adorable. Yeah. It is kind of cute. There's a little bit of an angle of being able to converse with the other side, if you will, mm-hmm. and a method of scrying or being able to contact spirits mm-hmm. through the reflection in water, mm-hmm. much like a crystal ball and things mm-hmm. like that. It, and of course, this is in much in that vein. This is very much 
the idea of the other side or the world of the dead breaking through to the world of the living, this whatever this water is, why it's leaking down into this apartment, wherever it's coming from is clearly the epicenter of something. And it is the only way that the spirit seems to be able to travel. So having little Iku sitting there contentedly spending time with the water is a great way to foreshadow, even though it's very, very, very subtle. Very, very subtle. To the point that I might be seeing things that aren't really there. <laughs> like, I will admit that. But this is the best part about horror interpretation, Lids. Yeah. This is why we love horror so much, is because it gives us a big, hefty plate to just gobble up and consume. She's so adorable, though. It's weird that they mention that there's no other kids in the building because when Yoshi is running around looking for her daughter, she does see a little girl. She swears she sees a little girl. A floor above their apartment in 405. When she Mm. goes back, the door is locked, which is just so weird uh, considering there are no kids in this building. Mm -hmm. Even though they found this bag full of toys. But the same sort of glimpse of a girl we do see as they're walking home from kindergarten one day, too. Mm-hmm. They really do. So we're being fed things. It's not just me being crazy thinking that she's, you know, having a moment with a spirit while watching this water bowl fill up with drips. We do. We are fed little tiny glimpses. Absolutely. And I mean, you said it best. She does see this little girl within the building when she goes up to check. And then when she decides that, because I mean, if you're, if you are on the third floor and something is leaking down into your ceiling, logically, then it's not the rain. It's got to be the apartment above you mm-hmm. that's leaking into your thing, either a burst pipe or, or something. And so she rightfully goes to check it out when no one really seems to be doing anything about it. And no one seems to be home. And then as she's leaving, who's this little girl? Goes back. It's gone. And the door is locked. And this is very much contributing to this heightened state of... Of hyper-awareness. And I think that if these strange occurrences weren't happening and if she wasn't stressed out from the divorce enough, she probably wouldn't even really be noticing this kind of stuff. But everything is needling her. Everything is making her crazy. Everything is just not... Nothing is going beyond her notice. Well, we noticed that the red bag, probably because it's the only colorful thing in the entire film, Mm -hmm. is missing from the lost and found so we figure someone had claimed it or maybe the sneakier person would think that the little girl must have secreted it away because she wanted it for herself or something but it's not the lost and found anymore as she's finishing unpacking and putting away the broken down boxes and cleaning up some trash from the move yoshimi sees the red bag in the garbage out back and it seems to make her angry and she stalks away from it it's that sort of feeds the idea that she is hyper aware and she is noticing way too much and reacting quite and kind of overreacting to a lot of things. Absolutely. We as the we as the film viewers can tell that this bag is definitely an omen of something. And we also can intuit from the fact that the moment she stepped into this apartment building before the apartment was even legally hers. She has been contacted by something that's there. Mm -hmm. Something that everyone else in the building either doesn't seem to notice, doesn't want to notice, or is pretending they don't notice. And because it it seems bonkers to me. But that being said, this building 
whatever has been happening seems to be escalating because I don't know we've spent five minutes there and we've already seen like a creepy ghost girl in doorways creepy ghost girl in the elevator water's dripping everywhere and it's creepy everything's fucking creepy and if you want to really take it down to brass tacks there is definitely an omen in that little bag because it's got a white rabbit on it and what do we do we follow the white rabbit that's what we do absolutely and one thing I found very interesting was Yoshimi is very specific about this bag. Not only does she notice it, but she seems incredibly agitated by its presence. Because even when the owners and the, the landlord ex- uh, say, well, we don't know who this belongs to, they offer it to the child because it's a cute bag. That it's full she, of toys. And it's full of toys. And why wouldn't she? She's a little girl. Why wouldn't she want it? She very sternly slaps her child's hand away from it says no it's not right she seems just agitated by the bag itself is she freaked out maybe because of the rabbit because isn't in japanese culture the rabbit i know rabbits live in the moon but aren't they harbingers of the dead and Mm -hmm. they can live between both worlds yeah, so it could definitely be that. Or it could be because it's contaminated with other kids' gross germs and fingerprints and it's disgusting to mm-hmm. take on someone else's toys when they could have died of typhoid. Mm-hmm. But taking something that was lost, she very specifically says it's not right. It seems almost the same way that you would, peop- some people might think about just taking someone who's dead's belongings like just i'm taking this and i'm taking that and i'm taking this she seems to sense something ominous about this bag yeah now it could just be because why did her daughter run off now here's her daughter she has this bag she didn't before she said it was on the roof there's no other kids in the building so there's just something off about it and she feels off anyway because of the fact that she's in the midst of a divorce and It doesn't help that throughout our life she's being constantly reminded about traditional nuclear families and how they seem to have everything a little bit easier. And she hasn't worked in six years and and her husband was the main breadwinner or the only breadwinner. And and she is a daughter of divorce herself. And so she probably knows the pain that would come with that. So she's feeling a lot of different things simultaneously. And I think because of that, she had this heightened sense of awareness lets her sense something about this bag that no one else can sense. Except maybe her daughter, but her daughter's not weirded out by it. No, no. no. Which is interesting. Um, In her, like, trying to regain some sense of normalcy, she's looking for a job the next day. Mm -hmm. And you can sense a little more of that, like, unease and a little bit of stress when she's undergoing an interview trying to get a job and she's late to pick up her daughter from kindergarten Mm -hmm. which would stress out any parent or any caregiver at all uh leaving any child unattended if you've ever been left unattended for three seconds when you were a kid and it freaked you out let alone being abandoned in any larger scope terrifying ordeal Mm -hmm. She doesn't want to put her daughter in that position or be viewed as a bad mother at this point, especially undergoing divorce proceedings. So she's kind of stressing out, but she still wants this job, but she's doing what she can. And she tries to call the kindergarten and there's no answer. So she just sort of rushes out of the interview 
she seemed to be giving a good interview, so I had given her the job. But she's yeah. sort of like, I look forward to working with you. Gotta go. Yeah, she kind of gives herself the job, and because the guy's like, oh, oh, okay. Now, in Japanese horror, it is not unusual to fuck with the timeline a little bit. It's not unusual to not really be obvious with your flashbacks. What Hideo Nakata does in this is the flashbacks are given to us with a yellow hue to them. Very subtle yellow hue. Very subtle yellow hue indeed. And also, if you notice, depictions of rain are done in the daytime. So it's bright, clear skies, yet it's raining. So it's this weird offness to everything and there's some tilts in it and everything like that most importantly is the fact that thankfully iku looks nothing like this other girl yeah and they refer to her by name yeah so but what they do is they splice in this idea of at this very kindergarten there was another girl that was constantly waiting for her mother to arrive and much like this little girl iku doesn't really wait for her mother gets her stuff together, and heads home on her own. Because even though she's only five years old, she's a very well-behaved girl and seems very independent and uh, is basically just like a little human already. So she's ready to, I'll just walk home. It's not that far. She knows where she lives. And so while we're seeing this uh, teacher from some point in the past complaining that this little girl's mother is not showing up, this little girl asks, where's mama? And then it cuts to Yoshimi, and then we're back in the present time. This is where she runs out of the job. It can be a little jarring. If you're not really paying attention, you, you could be like, whoa, 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 wait, what's this? This isn't the first time we've seen this little girl. We see her at the very beginning of yeah. the movie, uh, which helps a lot. Uh, and honestly, in terms of using flashbacks and fucked up timelines, this is the still one of the most linear and easy to follow. Yeah, they make it pretty clear by using the mother's name, thank God. And it's pretty clear because that's what's going through her mind. She's like, oh, I don't want to be that mom. I remember Mm -hmm. my mom. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, it is very easy to follow. Uh, And you're right. Many Asian horror films with flashbacks don't make them as clear as they do. Or maybe spoon feeding the audience like they do a lot of the time in North American, you know, mm-hmm. it's not quite like soap opera levels of flashback where you've got that like hazy tint and things like that. And everything's yeah. kind of through an echoplex, which is <laughs> yeah. just weird, but that's spoon feeding your audience in the worst way. Um, but this is subtle, but at least clear enough that we know who we're talking about here in these flashbacks. Absolutely. And by the time uh, Yoshimi gets to the school, it's late the gate is closed. The cutest gate in the world with cartoon characters. It's got little cute little animals on it. Aww, it's, everything in Japan's way cuter than here. I know. Like, really. Yeah, we need, like, funny cartoon animals on everything. Yeah. Yeah. And when you even think about it, like, our dead air uh, caricatures that were so lovingly crafted for us mm-hmm. aren't cute at all. <laughs> we're cute. But we're not that cute. I like to see the chibi version of Wes and Lydia. See how cute we could possibly be. <laughs> I'll get Chris on that. Yeah, please do. <laughs> uh, if he wants to do, get that cute, because that's pretty cute. I kind of like, you need a certain stomach of steel to get that cute. But in Japan, they're the toughest motherfuckers I ever did meet, because they are so cute. So while Yoshimi is rushing through the streets, trying to 
like take the same path her daughter did. Same sort of idea when she was rushing through the building trying to figure out, okay, if she went on this floor, would she have gone down here or up here? Like, where would I have gone? Like, trying to figure out where her daughter would go. She's rushing through the streets trying to figure out the, like, the quickest path or the most kid-like path. Where is her goddamn daughter? And she sees on a telephone post a missing poster, which is the last thing a mother would want to see while she's rushing around the streets in the dark looking for her missing daughter is a poster for a girl about the same age who is fucking missing. And this is Mitsuko Kawai, who's been missing for quite some time. And it sort of stresses her out. But she goes rushing down the street anyway and does see her in the distance with a man. A strange man. Who's this guy? Well, it's her fucking dad. Yeah, I know. Where did this motherfucker show up from? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe she called him. I don't know. Mm -hmm. If five years old, she would know her parents' phone numbers. Who knows? Maybe maybe her ex-husband was stalking his own daughter. Well. That seems about his fucking speed. Well, there's fucking evidence of that, and we'll get to that in a second. There's a very tense moment where these people are separated, and it almost seems as though... Her daughter might be a little mad at her, and maybe she is. I mean, she would have every eh, little, she, yeah. she she would have every right to be, uh, and or just pulling the sort of kid thing. Like I don't understand what's going on. All the adults are yelling, and I don't even know where I'm supposed to be right now. So I'm just gonna freeze. Like from her from Iku's perspective, all she knows is she went to school like she was supposed to, and she waited at the gate like she's supposed to, and no one showed up. So she just decided to try to go home. Mm-hmm. Which I don't really, and because even by the time uh, Yoshimi gets there, like no one's at that school. So, I mean, God, like how fucking late would she have been? Like hours late. Yeah, it's dark out and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Kind of sad and scary for a little girl. But they make up because she does kind of wrestle her daughter away from the husband. Give him a hack for just doing whatever he feels like he wants to do. When they do have some some sort of court-appointed custody until that's contested, she is the caretaker of this little girl. And he has no right to go picking her up from school. Mm-hmm. And in this day and age here in North America, I don't know how it is in other countries, you need to be on a specific list. To be picking children up. That's from what school. I. That's what I was going to say. I was confused because, yeah, if you're in Canada and probably United States as well, you, you usually need to be like a face to face. You have this is my ex husband. He is going. You have to like. It can't just be like. And like I'm running down a name. Like you have to fucking introduce this person. Even as an aunt, uh, if they hadn't met me, I need to provide photo ID to pick up my niece or nephew, and my sister needs to have called ahead of time to release those children to me yeah obviously yeah and even that treated with great suspicion and they they definitely rely on the children's reaction where they wait and they watch and it's really brilliant to see them do it they make sure that the kids recognize you and are happy to be with you because even if the kids recognize you and don't want to go with you they can hold those children they have more rights to those kids than you do and they had been just going through this divorce mm-hmm. when Iku was added to this kindergarten roster. So I'm pretty sure her mom would not have been releasing her daughter to her ex-husband in any way, shape, or form. So suffice it to say, those laws probably don't exist in Japan at this time. <laughs> that was a lot of talking around something that didn't really matter. But we were both kind of taken aback by the fact that he could just pick up his daughter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I guess she'd started walking and the school was none the wiser. I don't know. That's what I kind of got the impression of. I was like, did she, did he pick her up midway? But how would he know? 
How would you know? Well, let me tell you something. And the next time that she has a fucking custody hearing, these people got all kinds of fucking information, don't they? And not only that, but they had said that, you know, weren't you sleepwalking in the middle of the night? You didn't know where you were? Like, a story from her childhood? And bald-faced lies. Like, didn't you dislocate your daughter's shoulder when you pulled her away from your husband? Lies. Fucking straight-up lies. Yeah. Super-duper lies. Mm. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're just happy because a mother-daughter relationship is fine. Even after that problem, they go and buy some fireworks, try and cheer everything up a little. Even going up the building. This is not even a half hour later. Little Iku is making jokes about uh, fourth floor toys, which is cute (laughs) in the elevator. At least she's, you know, not weirded out by this building the way we fucking are. Mm -hmm. Because when I'm thinking about fourth floor toys, I'm thinking fourth floor where this little creepy ghost girl is that owns the toys in that bag that you found. Mm -hmm. And I'm instantly freaked out by that scene. Absolutely. And uh, Iku also gives her a, a pretty sweet line about, you know, I don't mind just living with you. Just so you know, like, and, and and it's kind of this quiet moment where they're looking at this nuclear family and they have fireworks. And then I guess probably not much was said between the two. And she, her mom is trying to be cheerful. And, and so you want to like do stuff, try to keep things light. And uh, the, the daughter finally speaks up on it, which is a pretty mature reaction. And for and five years old, for yeah, five years but old, you mature pretty fast when you're going through all this very adult yeah. relationship situation Underst- understanding that her mom probably feels bad yeah yeah, yeah. and like under looking at this 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 more normalized idea of a family and then kind of understanding that oh i bet my mom feels bad because we're not like that anymore and let's also do fireworks um but it's not but like you know there's no dad here mm-hmm. you know so like I, I like i really dig that scene um a lot and i think that this is a really strong adorable relationship between a mother and a daughter and you can definitely see that it's pretty healthy and you also could see that yoshimi is not the a perfect woman she uh, you, you know gets real upset real fast and even in that custody battle she is having to be pulled off of her husband she's so angry yeah she freaks out to the point where i am a little taken aback because it's just you know you know that you're not supposed to be freaking out on anyone really like that or letting anyone get the best of you emotionally especially in front of the fucking divorce lawyers in the custody battle just calm your fucking shit Get yourself fucking together. It doesn't matter what he does or says. You can't let them see you freak out like that, especially when that's not really your nature. She doesn't seem to be this over-emotional wreck who's going to like try and claw someone else's eyes out. Mm -hmm. And you can say yes because it's coming down to custody that she's being over-emotional. But I'd like to think that because it's a custody battle, that's where she would keep her emotions in fucking check. Yeah. But like I said, she's not a perfect person, but I think what this moment and, and a conversation she has with, I guess, another lawyer that witnesses this breakdown. Yeah. Um, I guess what this boils down to is a new resolve to be stronger in the future. But she's basically just trying to figure shit out. She's doing the best that she can. And even though I do kind of wonder, because since she is a child of divorce herself, that this is not a totally alien thing for her to be dealing with. But that being said, she's never been a single mother before. So despite she's, she was a little girl that saw her parents get divorced and now she's living it herself. So, I mean, that is very different. 
Yeah, six years of married life and probably have told herself all that time that this was what it's going to be from here to the end of eternity. And that happened to my parents, but we're different. Yeah, exactly. So have all that kind of crashed down on her. But at the end of the day, she still does a really good job being a happy, good mom because Mm -hmm. she's not taking any of this out on her daughter. Her daughter seems happy and Mm well-adjusted. Aside from the statement that she is happy to just stay with her mother, she's a happy-go-lucky, inquisitive intelligent super intelligent girl yeah and she's still being cared for she doesn't go hungry she's not like seeing she doesn't see any of these proceedings so she doesn't see her mom beating on her father in the hallway Mm. or anything like that which he totally deserved oh yeah even if i think that it's a bit of a fucking freak out no one should really treat anyone like that or let other people get the better of them like that emotionally especially since ultimately he has nothing he has nothing like what he has is a bald-faced lie that she can easily say there like my daughter's arm just straight up has not been dislocated like do we need doctors like that she could pull out a really good ace in the hole and be like yeah i don't want him to smoke around my daughter he needs to quit (laughs) Have yeah. fun with that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, 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 you know, oh, don't you sleepwalk at night and you do this? And and she's like, well, I did it when I was a little girl, but I don't do that anymore. Any of his accusations, she could turn around and be like, prove it now. Prove it how, right now, how this affects my life. Go and prove it. Don't just talk about it. Prove it. And they won't find a thing because she's behaving Yeah. Fine. And especially at this point, she's got a place to live. She's got a job. And everything's hunky-dory. Yeah. Well, not everything's hunky-dory. But there's also another little interesting twist that is revealed in this scene that I want to talk about before we leave it because I know we've been lingering on it for a minute. Mm -hmm. But it's the fact that while she watches her husband ash his cigarette in that fucking uh, ashtray, she recalls that for some reason when they were in the elevator not long ago, the one of the buttons for their floor was all ashed on and her daughter reached for it and she said no no no, don't touch it because it looked all fucking dirty or whatever and when we're watching that the first time we think to ourselves what does that mean oh is that like a a ghost dirt is that ghost dirt is that is that what that is but then she draws the conclusion oh this fucker has been in my building and he went up the 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 elevator and ashed his fucking cigarette in that button because who the fuck does that? This fucking guy. What a creep. What a gross creep. Yeah. I didn't even... I hated that scene where they're like mashing the cigarette out. Like 45 on minutes. Fingers and it's like the most <laughs> disgusting thing on the entire planet. Like, Aside it, from toothbrushing. Yeah. There's a toothbrushing scene in yeah. this film. You I watch, will warn people who can't watch this it. guy ash a cigarette and I, and I just want to be like, all right, guy, you got it. Okay, it's out. It's <laughs> touching his fingers. I'm just so grossed out. It's all I can smell is like ash out cigarette. Blah, gross. But anyway. Not as gross as corpse water, but pretty fucking gross. And speaking of corpse water, that fucking leak in the ceiling is getting worse. Yeah. Holy fuck is it getting it's worse. It's like half the ceiling in her bedroom now is completely yeah. rotted out. And she's just fucking had enough. And what ends up happening is she's like, her daughter goes missing again. She's paying a lot of attention to that leak in the ceiling while her daughter's in the tub. And... Cute as it is for a little kid playing in the tub or whatever, she's talking away to somebody, which isn't totally unnatural for kids to talk to nobody. I mean, I still fucking do it. But she's talking to someone named Mitsu-chan, which is kind of creepy if you're like reading forward. That's the same name as this girl that went missing two years ago in the area. Mm -hmm. But she's got a little imaginary friend, whatever, kind of normal. 
Um, that stain in the ceiling, though, is absolutely not normal. There's water, water everywhere at this point. Yeah. Yeah. You know the creepy thing that she says in that bathtub scene, too? Mm. Is she doesn't want to get out of the water. She's going to stay in there forever and ever. Creepy, eh? But right. kids say that. They want their fingers to get pruny. I've had a little girl I was babysitting once say, I want to stay in the tub until my fingers get pruny. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's not good. That's a long time. You don't want to stay in the tub that long. And she looked at me like I was crazy and cruel. Like I was some sort of warden depriving her of the necessities of life and said growly like that I want to stay in the tub until my fingers go pruny. Oh, God. I, th- I-, I would just be like, she's possessed. Ghost girl. Get her. <laughs> Very weird. But yeah, so she wants to stay in the tub forever and ever. Knock yourself out, kid. Yeah, you'll really. you'll want to get out when you look at your fingers and they're pruny. Very weird. Very, very weird scene. But everything's starting to get weird in this fucking place. We've seen more glimpses in the elevator footage of a little girl in the elevator. But by the way, like Iku has also not been completely devoid of any sort of experiences because when she's playing hide and seek with her friends in school, when she's hiding, she sees a, a very strange girl. But just her legs. And she's in a yellow rain slicker. And when she's walking towards her, she just seems to be pooled with water. And the water seems to flow unnaturally towards her direction. Yeah, like it's reaching out fingers of water reaching mm-hmm. out toward her. Menacing, menacing. And I, I, I did have a giggle watching that because I started thinking of Regan in The Exorcist peeing herself. <laughs> <laughs> like coming downstairs while everyone's having their fancy party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if only it had gone that way. If, her, if she had peed torrents of water and they'd reached out to them along the floor, that would have been fucking scary. But this is pretty fucking scary. And um, little Iku has a little bit of a collapse at school because of it. Mm-hmm. And this is where they start to, the the school themselves say, like, aren't you going through a divorce? Like, isn't this also happening? And, and, and what the fuck else? And, uh... There's another connection that she sees, a bunch of drawings that a bunch of kids have done. And and Yoshimi, when she goes to the school to talk to these people uh, and accusing her, like, what have you done to my daughter? She's all stressed out. She's passed out. Like, what the fuck? You guys did something to her. And when she's dra- her eyes are drawn to this drawing, this drawing of this little girl in a yellow rain slicker with, I mean, it's very crudely drawn. It's like a little girl drawing. Yeah. And even has a little inscription I think added by another kid that says, come home soon, Mitsuko. Yeah. And this is where the principal says that, you know, a couple of years ago, this uh, little girl went missing. And I still think that she was taken by a pervert. Yeah. I was like, great. Thanks. Yeah. He just adds that in. Well, people have theories. Like we have all those theories about Elisa Lam and there's hundreds more where those came from on YouTube. Yeah, exactly. Everyone has theories and this would be the sort of thing. Missing girl, missing kids. I was listening to the CBC podcast. I've been listening to um, Missing and Murdered. And and that's a kind of short one because I had to cut it short because the uh, case was looking into a little more vigorously by investigators. They had to stop the podcast. I think that's how that happened. But Missing and Murdered is a cbc podcast that was also done around the same time it seems as someone knows something and the both they're both about missing persons cases and one of them is a little boy from this area that was missing and everyone has their theory about that he slipped and fell and got caught in the river that he 
ran away and got lost in the forest, that he went into the forest and got attacked by an animal, that he got picked up by a pedophile, that someone knows something and there's something else more sinister going on here. Yeah. So everyone has their theories. I'm sure everyone had their theories about a little five-year-old girl that had gone missing for two years. And do they really talk about what happened to her mother? Does her mother just disappear from the area? Yeah. 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 The mother disappears from the area. With no real, you know, I guess she'd be a little overwrought and move from the area after a certain amount of time. But it seems sort of quick. You'd think, almost think that the mom would be around there looking for her or something. I don't know. It's yeah. just weird. But everyone has their theories, right? Everyone has their theories. And it's not out of the realm of possibility that this individual has upped and vanished. It's a bit much for a school teacher to turn to another mother and say that the, I think this kid was scooped up by a pervert. Yeah. In the midst of a crisis like this, too, her little girl is like lying there on the bed, practically yeah. unconscious. Very sick. Um, but there is water, water everywhere at this point in the apartment, in the school, it's creeping us out. And frankly, I'm surprised they're still living there because there's water. I'm surprised it's not like seeping up into the carpet and squishing when they walk or dripping all over their fucking beds. Well, eventually what ends up happening is Yoshimi decides, look, man, enough is enough. No one's doing anything. My daughter has gone missing now. We fell asleep. The bed is completely soaked. The ceiling is like pouring this fucking shit. I'm going to go look for my kid. And she's not in any of the places that she normally is. And so... Fuck it. I'm going up to that room again, which is now unlocked. And when she opens that door, holy shit. I'm straight out of Silent Hill. I'm surprised that that water stain isn't a million times worse. So what we have here is a room just absolutely drenched. The sink is on. It's overflowing. There's, what would you say, like a inches, a few inches of Probably water. Six inches of water. Six inches of water on the floor. It's, it's, it's looks like it's practically raining inside of this room. It's all gray. It's all fucked up. All moldy and soft and gross and wet and damp and probably stinks. And who knows? There's probably a full life cycle or two of frogs and tadpoles in there. Yeah, exactly. So she went like and and you know fucking amazing this is where like the creepy scenes in this movie are so fucking effective because we the audience get to see so often shit happening that the main characters don't see and so we get into the room and in that corner we see that there's somebody there mm-hmm. and you're like oh my god who's that is that is that what's happening what's happening what's happening and then this person just sort of like inches forward very unnaturally but it's Iku she's in a bit of a trance why was she in that room what was she doing there and then as she grabs her daughter and lifts her up as she's basically passing the fuck out um, and the light goes by and she sees the silhouette of a person by the window looking at them into that apartment and holy fucking shit does she book the fuck out of that room and then the next time we see her her daughter is asleep on the couch and she's fucking packing her bags and moving away. Yeah. They're out. They're out. What else explanation would you need? It's like, I don't care what the fuck's going on. Look at this place. Yeah, even telling her lawyer, like, I don't care. I don't care how this impacts case. I don't care about anything. I just need out of here. Yeah, his perspective is that 
look, you 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 don't want to move her kindergartens. This looks really bad. Like you can't pull her out of school. Um, so he can't... gets the landlord involved, which is good because this is the first time that he's been accountable enough to come by. Because she's complained to the superintendent at this point, but finally he gets the fucking landlord around. Yeah, and she tried to call him earlier and said that he was just gonna like call the the supervisor, but that didn't end up happening. But her lawyer fucking basically lays down the law, and I and, and sadly, what it really feels like is a case of well, they're not paying attention to this woman. Yeah. So. Here comes this man in a suit who's being like, you know, to his credit, he's being very authoritative where he's like, get up to this room, open this door right now. Like, you know, it's not, it's, there's no room. Yeah, where she's also a little bit too stressed out to really put her foot down about anything right now Mm because her biggest worry, aside from like the rotten fucking ceiling is winning this custody battle against her stupid goddamn husband but it's really no excuse to ignore somebody and that is even a bigger reason for a superintendent and landlord to give her a little bit of slack and investigate these things and take care of the you know health hazard that her fucking apartment is becoming and they should have looked into this already the assholes but unfortunately yeah it did take a man to go stomping in there yeah and and of course they all let me ask you this. Did you think that when they opened up that apartment that it was going to be completely fine and nothing was wrong with it? Part of me kind of hoped so. <laughs> yeah, but no, sure enough, this fucking room, while not pouring with water anymore, is totally water damaged. It's fucked. Like, I, like thinking about it, I, like, there, the only way that you could save this room is literally stripping like stripping it down to the fucking concrete. They need to strip it down to concrete and then they could never use it for anything but storage because it's just not hospitable and it would take too much to replace everything and i'm pretty sure there's mold in to everything so yeah. if you cover it again it's just going to become infested with mold yeah burn the whole fucking building down really is what it's going to take really honestly mm-hmm. that's not just one room out of order the whole building is out of order but i mean you can have a corpse in your water tank for four days and still run a hotel so yeah absolutely although even uh, yoshimi's water does taste a little funny Tastes a little funny, and there's hair in it sometimes. Yeah, that was the sad, like, that was the grossest when she pulls a cup of water and there's like one hair in it and she makes that face and dumps it out. Like, yeah. Yeah. you had said, I would be moving at this point. Yeah, I would have been moving then too. Definitely. Um, what ends up happening is after the lawyers, like, like, basically, the supervisor and the landlord are basically trying to pass blame off to each other, and he. He basically lays down the law and says, well, you're going to fucking fix that. You got to fix this and you're going to fix her fucking apartment. And then they bring up to the water tank where uh, Yoshimi had been up earlier. And he points out to the landlord, like, looks like this thing hasn't been cleaned in a long time. The landlord now or the, or the uh, supervisor agitated. He's like, that's not my job. Like, that's like cleaners jobs to do that. And he's like, can I, I can go now. Right. And he just fucking leaves. Um, it's so sad. We had seen a little tiny clip of the missing girl mm-hmm. who is the owner of the red bag. Yeah, we definitely know that now. Heading into the elevator mm-hmm. at one point with the cleaning crew with a pump and a bunch of hoses. Mm-hmm. So we know that because it hasn't been cleaned in a long time, if we're thinking while we're watching this and we're as you know high strung as the mother at this point and we're noticing fucking everything... The last time it was cleaned was probably sometime around that time that little girl went missing. And that was two fucking years ago. Mm-hmm. No wonder this apartment 
has been leaking water for over a year and a half, mm-hmm. at least. I figure maybe even two years because it was the beginning of the year before was when that apartment became free above them. It's and no one has even looked at the water situation, the water tanks since that little girl gone missing two years ago. Mm-hmm. They had mentioned that the father of this household had stayed in the apartment for a little while after his mentality being, well, when my daughter shows up again, she won't have a home to go to if if I leave. But eventually he does move out. And so they postulate, well, the sink has been running for half a year now. Yeah. Um, and after a lot of like mansplaining and rationalization, uh, he basically puts Yoshimi's mind at ease. And look, the, the apartment, the, the ceiling is getting fixed. And uh, happy days. All right. All right. I don't have to move. I don't have to, to lift her out of kindergarten. And there's one more custody uh, hearing to happen. And, uh, you know. We'll be fine. Uh, and Yoshi- you're not crazy because even though you thought you saw a person up on the water tank and creepily upstairs while you were uh, being scared and running around the building looking for your daughter who was missing and having a little freak out in this abandoned apartment, it was probably just a trick of the light. Probably just a trick of the light. And... And, uh, and, and, oh, well, we're okay. And hey, you know what? Uh, uh, Iku, who's been quite sick since her uh, big encounter uh, in this room, seems better. Yeah, a lot and, better. Yeah. And, and so they're back. She's like, everything's all right. All right. We're doing it. We're doing it. Oh, but that bag came back. <laughs> yeah. She kind of accuses her daughter of secreting it. Like I would have accused the daughter of secreting it when it wasn't even in the Lost and Found anymore at the beginning of the film. Yeah. Um, but her daughter is tells her straight up, no, I didn't keep this bag. No, I and I don't remember where it came from. I didn't bring it back and I didn't hang on to it. So she seems to trust her daughter and believe her when she says that, but she's still very freaked out by this bag reappearing. Because it just won't fucking leave them. And what is it about this bag that won't leave them at all? And when she touches it, she gets kind of a flashback. She does get a flashback. And this is where uh, she starts to realize what has happened. She gets this flashback that indicates that on one day, when this young girl was waiting for her mother, who was never going to show up, she wandered back home. And curiosity or whatever, the roof is very accessible. She was unattended. And she went up to the roof of the building. And she went up to the water tank. And which was, this water tank was left open. She was probably watching the cleaners because she got in the elevator with them. And they have a pump and hoses and interesting things. And kids are interested in interesting things. And... She was bored and probably needed something to take the mind off the fact that she was momentarily abandoned. Yeah. And so she climbs up to the top of the water tower and peers in. And she unfortunately loses her balance and her little bunny bag and her body plunge headfirst into that tank. What we do know is this little girl never left that tank. And we know this because as Yoshimi gets that flashback and heads up to the seventh floor to get onto the roof, which, as we said before, is very accessible. She climbs up to this water tower up the ladder, which, by the way, is pouring water out of it. Yeah, it's overflowing and very it's just a creepy scene entirely because everything still looks dingy and horrible. You're sort of in a state of unease as well because she's told her daughter to stay still and her daughter's defying her entirely. So you know that the daughter could be anywhere right now. Mm. But she's like slowly making her way up this water tower 
And then you put it into the position of the year 2017 where we're freaked out about Elisa Lamb, <laughs> which no one was back then. But now we're like triple freaked out because not only do we already know where this story is going, but we have this added level of creepiness from the, the true story of the Cecil Hotel. Mm-hmm. My God, makes it even more insane. And I don't remember the remake being this scary at this scene because this is where this... Uh, horror movie turns its taps on full blast and not only would you say full blast but hammered off because in what is my second favorite scene in this entire film is we get this knock 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 from the inside of this water tank and it gets more loud and louder and then you see full-on indents from a handprint banging on it, the unnatural strength of a ghost, and Yoshimi is screaming in terror as this happens. Meanwhile, Iku is not immune to goings-on either because this haunting, this curse, whatever you want to call it, is now just exponentially increasing. A full-on lock of hair comes out of the drain as Iku goes to grab herself a drink in the kitchen. Which is so disgusting. And I I did sort of toy with the idea of getting some synthetic hair and putting it in your water glass today. I've barely touched my water today, too. Well, go figure, considering what we just watched. I feel bloated and uh, and hydrated just watching this movie. Yeah, truthfully. Especially when you're dealing with like taps that won't shut off. There is water, water everywhere in this yeah, scene. But so you, like... you won't want to take a drink. That bath water pouring into that tub looks fucking filthy. And it's probably a lot of what the residents of the Cecil Hotel were dealing with. It mm-hmm. looks... They did a pretty good approximation of what I imagine corpse water to look like. Little chunks of decomposed flashed a horrible brownish turbid look to it the the way that water is probably smells is horrendous bringing back one of my classics what does this fucking smell like you do like the way things supposedly smell but apparently the water tasted kind of sweet and it did have an off odor but it wasn't like you'd expect Mm -hmm. at the cecil anyway i'm sure there's lots of places where floaters have been found that don't smell good at all yeah i guess it'll all depend about how how much body and how much water we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. And how long and other, yeah. if there was bugs in the water to do some work or not. Yeah. Because this Sunlight. is this is a very isolated, small, relatively small. If you're gonna put, you know, fifty pounds of fucking meat in this water silo and and shut it for oh, we we can see the cleaning date. July fourteenth, nineteen ninety nine. And what was that missing person sign say july 14th 1999 so that's all the final pieces put together and now we know that what yoshimi wants to do is get back down to her daughter and iku has basically just abandoned the apartment looking for her mother now too trying to connect each other but she's been blinded by the water she can't see fucking shit and she's calling for her mother and as Yoshimi is coming down, this is my favorite scene in this film because holy fuck is this creepy. We finally see the ghost of this film in all her glory, Mitsuko, say mama in this fucking horrible shriek of a voice. She is blackened. She is bloated. She is melty. She stayed in that tub till she got pruny. 
Holy. She is pruny, like, and her features have almost melded together. It's really, really gross and really, really horrific. And it looks, you know, if you want to get technical, it's like some sort of rubber suit that this kid is wearing. Mm. Um, but done very, very well and slimy and gross and wet and bloated and rotten. She grabs Yoshipi by the fucking throat. And you could imagine that a, a ghost that can indent the metal wall. Oh, and the metal wall of a huge cistern like that is super thick metal. So, you know, it's not just aluminum, right? Yeah. You know that it's super thick metal. And you can hear by the sound. They did a really, really good job with the sound work there with the Foley because it's like you can hear the force of those punches landing like those hand like smacking on the inside leaving those dents uh so you know how strong this ghost is and you can hear these sounds again pretty good foley work of the straining and weird wet wet bloated kid's skin on mom neck yeah however you approximate that sound <laughs> they did a really good job of like you can feel the choking going on there mm -hmm. yeah. and you would you definitely get the sense that this spirit will kill yoshimi because she's rejecting her. She's looking for her mother and she seems to be interpreting this person as her mother. Now, we've seen this type of stuff in J-Horror before with the Ring series. Uh, it doesn't help that she has her actual daughter standing there going, Mama. Yeah. <laughs> so it, you can, it, there's no way you can lie to this ghost right now because you've got your actual daughter right there. Mm -hmm. Oops. And then what she decides to do is come to the realization that this ghost is killing her, but more so than killing her, it's not clear whether or not that is this spirit attempting to replace Iku entirely. And the best way to replace this girl who keeps going missing, who keeps running off into dangerous places by herself, is to get rid of her. Is that the next logical step? Is that why Yoshimi makes the decision that she makes? That or just she's going to keep doing this to other people. It's she's true. She's just going to keep doing this. She's a relentless spirit at this point. And if it's not her, it's going to be somebody else. So in this moment, she makes a decision to tell Iku to stay back. And then she embraces this bloated, gross spirit and says, yes, I'm your mother. Your mother's here. And as... The elevator doors close, and she looks painfully back at her genuine daughter. And it starts filling up with water. Filling up with water. One of my favorite things. And the elevator rises. This fucking gorgeous shot of this elevator uh, rising with light all around it while it just pours water down. It's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, that's one of my favorite scenes in this entire film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, that could be like a fucking... You could frame that and put it on the wall. Like, that is such a beautiful shot. Yeah. And Iku, completely distraught, barely understands what she's looking at, but also kind of seems to understand in the moment what's happening. Well, she's also being friends with this spirit to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a storyline that they follow too, too much. We don't get many of the conversations. Mm -hmm. But she did want to stay in that water forever, and I don't think that that was necessarily the ghost talking. I think she wanted to befriend this lonely ghost who died through misadventure and had been left lonely for probably a lot of her short life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. She probably has just plain compassion for the ghost, Mitsuko. Yeah. And yeah, so defeated, confused, soaking wet, Iku drops in front of, uh, sorry, confused and fevered, she 
rises, or sorry, chases the elevator up, tries to chase the elevator up to the seventh floor. She knows where it's going. Smart little girl that she is. Could be a sense of bargaining, too, where she's like, wait, wait, wait. No, I didn't mean that. I mean, I meant it then, but I don't mean it now. Four seconds later. But yeah, so she chases the elevator. She chases the elevator up, and then when she gets to it, she collapses in front of the elevator doors. And as the elevator opens, it's just this massive cascade of water just completely covers her. Yeah, not dissimilar to the elevators opening in The Shining. But in this case, it's dark water, not blood. And there's no one in that elevator whatsoever. It's empty. The great scene, too, because that water just balls that little girl over <laughs> like a bowling pin and a strike. Hideo Nakata had had said that the thing that he liked about filming the the scene when he did, filming this film when he did, was the fact that they could still get away with putting a real actor in front of that. He, he said nowadays... They would insist that the whole thing would be CG because you can't put a five-year-old actor in that kind of danger. But he said, no, I was able to use like the genuine actor and she was fine and we were very careful and and everything like that. But he was like, oh, I was very lucky that I could do it then. And I was like, he's right. It is great to see it with a natural actor. I mean, even the the shot of uh, that little girl going ass over tea kettle into that cistern of water that was also genuine that was a real actor that go, went into the the drink so to speak and then we do something that this film hasn't really done that much we've gotten some flashbacks but now we're fucking with time 10 years later so this whole movie was a flashback this whole movie was a fucking flashback <laughs> yeah it's easily overlooked it's not detrimental that this whole movie was a flashback i'm mostly just being a dick but this movie was you know we go to 10 years in the future we do. And this is where Iku, now grown, who was uh, played by Asami Mizukawa, um, who later would go on to do more horror. She would end up as one of the main characters in the Locker series, kind of a flawed but well-meaning uh, addition to the ghost genre coming out of Japan. There's so many school ghosts. Oh, my God. There's probably like a hundred different Japanese school ghosts. My yeah. favorite is the toilet ghost. <laughs> Yeah, but, yeah, and she ends up in front of the same kindergarten that she used to attend when she was little. It seems to be a bit of serendipity because when she looks at that kindergarten, a lot of primal memories come back to her. Ten years is a long time when you're five years old. I don't know. I have a really great memory. I have memories from when I was six months old. I have memories from when I was a year. Very clear memories from three, three years old on. And maybe I'm just really lucky. I don't know. I, I barely have memories from that time of my life. I a don't. lot of people don't. I know people that don't have memories till they're seven or nine. They're not really sure. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. but, so my brain, where I'm coming from, I'm like, of course you remember your kindergarten. I mean, I remember most days of kindergarten, but she barely remembers kindergarten. Mm-hmm. I remember snippets of kindergarten. So it's not, it's not, uh, it's not completely unknown to me, but here's the real kicker. What happens to a little girl in the middle of a custody battle when her mother inexplicably vanishes? Guess she goes to live with dad. She does go to live with dad, and that is where she definitely ended up. And even though her friends try to pull her away to get some ice cream, she stares at that kindergarten school and gets another inkling that, wait a second, I used to go here. I used to live. And I used to live just a stone's throw from here. Yeah. So she decides to take it upon herself to go to her own homestead. And what we find 10 years later is a very different building. The entire building is in ruins. 
there's nobody there. It's abandoned. And if it's not abandoned, there can't be very many people there. It looks like the the spot of the superintendent has been manned in years. Yeah, it's like being condemned and then everyone forgot it was condemned. Yeah. because it's beyond it, condemned. Because she can access it no problem. Yeah, she doesn't and, have to break in. Yeah, so it's not really sure, but we definitely get the sense that, yeah, this place is condemned. I mean, the uh, the the exterior of it looks pretty heavily water damaged. Blackened, crumbly. And when she goes through the hallways up to her old house... Looks pretty crumbly yeah, and moldy. plants growing and everything and slime on the walls. Yeah. And then she goes into the apartment. But it looks like not a day has gone by. Everything looks intact and beyond intact. Everything looks immaculate. There's no dust even, let alone mold and things that are ravaging the rest of the building. It looks exactly like it did. Their TV's still in place, which tells you that no one's robbed the joint, mm. which is unheard of. I mean, with a condemned building like that, that you can just walk into. But everything's fine. And everything is beyond fine. Maybe it is lived in because her mother's standing right there. Yep. Doesn't look a day uh, different from when we last saw her. And they have a really heartfelt conversation. Her mother smiles at her weekly. And then uh, Iku, now the teenage Iku, is trying to get some sort of sense of understanding. Because it seems that she doesn't quite remember everything that happened and she certainly doesn't seem to remember this incident with the water no because she's not mad she's just like you know if no, no one told me you were still here i would have come a lot sooner if i knew you were here yeah she said hey you know my friend lives real close to here so i can come visit a lot or or or, or then she even pulls out the big guns like you know maybe i can live with you you know dad's remarried and he's got new daughters now and so you know i'll tell them myself she seems to not be angry at her mother at all she missed her she just wanted to understand where she was and why she had left but then she gets a sense that they're not alone in that room and she barely looks behind her and we can see out of focus is a little girl in a yellow rain slicker still standing there behind her before she does turn around her mother apologizes and says i can't i can't live with you like Mm -hmm. we can't you can't live here we can't be together and when she looks to see whatever she feels is standing behind her and then she she sees nothing and then she looks towards where her mother was and her mother's gone and i thought from here what would be a nice touch and you had talked about it beforehand i i i agree with you 100 percent. is that if the entire apartment was a dilapidated soaking mess i really wish that she'd have looked just one more time behind her the other direction and that's what she'd have seen but it's still like i don't know if this is a complete illusion and it can go a couple ways, much like the Elisa Lamb video can go many different ways when you really think about what theory is driving this particular scene is that uh, her mother had some psychiatric difficulty. And maybe mm-hmm. it was just an excuse if she was proofreading some harsh content and it got to her. Maybe she did have a bit of an imbalance and it's been passed down and her daughter's a little imbalanced too because she's talking to people that aren't there mm-hmm. and seeing ghosts. And maybe she saw ghosts all along. Um, maybe she is hallucinating this scene in particular and could be that this place is actually genuinely haunted 
-hmm. And it is a dilapidated wreck, but this is the power of that particular ghost can trick her into not only making that apartment look like it did 10 years ago, but making her see her own mother. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a pretty powerful spirit if Mm -hmm. she's acting on a completely sound mind. That can go so many different ways. Mm -hmm. It also could be that this room is maintained while the rest of the the building has essentially been infected by this spirit. And it's kept this way because of the fact that Yoshimi has made the decision to be the surrogate mother to this spirit. And so because of that, the building is like her room is left alone, whereas the rest of the building is rotting away. It also seems that when Iku gets the sense that that spirit is there, she seems to also get the additional memories that she has just filed away because she was a little girl. Yeah. So she definitely, when she leaves that building, remembers that spirit that day, the true occurrences that happened. And she leaves saying that she understands now finally after all of these years that her mother was protecting her from this spirit. So it is it is entirely possible because if then that also makes me not entirely clear if her mother's fucking dead or not. Yeah. Because I, I was like, so your mother's dead, where's the body? And if the body just vanished in a sort of mystical occult sort of way and she is dead then that means that she's just haunting it too. Yeah, she's probably just in the water tank. Yeah. That's what I'm guessing. Everyone just goes in the water tank. Yeah, like... They, maybe, might as well be disappeared. Maybe under some sort of delusion, she's just gone to the water tank and just got in there with her, so the spirit's not alone. Yeah. Who knows? Crazy. Mm-hmm. I like this movie a lot. It was a it was a really fun watch, and I hope that it lives up to... You haven't seen Abnormal Beauty, which is coming up. Yeah. So I hope that this lives up. I hope that Abnormal Beauty lives up to this, actually. Um, Coming up next, we have Pulse. We do have Pulse. Another film that was introduced to me through the remake first, the uh, Kristen Bell remake. And then I found out later that it was based off of a Japanese original. And so I said, oh, my God, let's do it. Mm -hmm. A lot of nice um, CCTV, if I recall correctly, Mm -hmm. usage of that and and crazy hallways and weird buildings, confined spaces, great things that J-horror is made up of. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm super excited to get to that. Uh, If you guys are ever super excited about any film, please feel free to let me know at my Twitter account at Wes Deadairnipe or at Lydia's Twitter account. If you can figure that out, I'll give you a gold star. Uh, at typical Lydia yep. although you can definitely request me or you can go to splatterpictures.net leave a comment or you can go to our Facebook page splatterpictures slash Podcast, and you can find Wes on Instagram as well we actually did something that might end up on Instagram who knows I know it's going to end up on splatterpictures.net we had a little photo shoot today we did have a little photo shoot you made me feel so pretty yeah i do a good job of that that's what i do all day mm-hmm. make west feel pretty <laughs> but yeah so we'll have some uh, cool new photos up new bios and stuff like that fun stuff for you to poke around when you're sick of or done listening to our wonderful voices regale you with horror movie info and insights yeah, so that was super fun today, too. And it ties in. I wish we were doing Abnormal Beauty next because you would be fucking creeped out that I just had a photo shoot with you. 
<laughs> I kept thinking that we were uh, going to do Shudder and you're going to take my photo and then there's just going to be a ghost girl sitting on my back. <laughs> I We have to go through the photos a little more closely for that. Wait till I have them on the big screen and we'll see if you have ghosts attached to your back. It yeah. wasn't it creepy enough that we had the Maniac soundtrack playing in the background? <laughs> I love that, by the way. It was so good. I just, I randomly, not apropos of nothing because we were doing a photo shoot. And I put music on some the Siva 6, new Siva 6 album, which actually has a, in the house and heartbeat, it has a take on that. So mm. that's why I put that on because I really like that song and the cover of it's not too bad. But you had said maybe we should have the Maniac soundtrack on. <laughs> yeah, I did. And, and. I thought you were looking it up online or something. I was like, did you, oh, you're going to like YouTube that or something? No, you just had it on your phone. Of course I had it on my phone. Chris gifted it to me ages ago and I had written a story to it. It's become very important to me and I do love the remake of Maniac. Mm -hmm. And so it's like a remake kind of day here at uh, Dead Air Podcast. (laughs) Well, I like it. I'm Wes Knight. And I'm typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air. I don't, they'll never know that I do like a bit of a wink and a gun to the microphone every time we do that. Unless you leave that part that you just said in the show. <laughs> Thank you.